This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 68. Deep Space Nine Roundtable Discussion. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Earl Green. And I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we pick apart an episode of Star Trek, examining it for the morals, meanings, and messages. And that is not what we're doing today. Rather... We're looking back at the whole series, Deep Space Nine, and Earl is here to be our special guest host. And you, yes, you listeners, you are the ones who submitted the questions and comments. And can I just say that uh, it has been time enough. We absolutely should have had Earl on at some point before now. Well, with his very open schedule, I'm pretty sure that he could have fit us in, but... You know, uh-huh. you know. I don't want to speak for Earl. Earl, I'm sure you have plenty of time, don't you? All the time in the world for this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. It's about time we had you on on that side of the mic. And uh, thank you for everything that you do for us. And, uh, you know, I guess as far as expert witnesses go, you have a better grasp of what we've talked about on Mission Log uh, uh, covering DS9 over the last few years, really, than anybody because you put the shows together and you have heard our ramblings you've cut out the stuff that didn't make it to air you've you've pieced things together where we've flubbed you've made us sound good and uh you probably i'm just assuming that there are moments in there you thought hmm i have to ask the guys about that someday when we look back at the series sometimes uh usually either my mind has been blown by the time i'm done editing and really you know editing a podcast the job description is being listener number one right you know before everyone else gets to hear it and you know sort of paring things down a little bit though not a whole lot nice all right well well thank you for indulging us and and sorry for the uh many late nights and uh exhaust exhaustion that norman and i have uh caused you between this and the live show and everything else i have a five prodigy and orville and everything we're doing so your work is greatly appreciated and today the words of our listeners greatly appreciated because we we put the call out there we've been collecting your thoughts and comments and uh among the many ways that we'll be wrapping up ds9 this is the one where you get to have your say you get to kind of jog our memories a bit and then earl earl is just gonna he's gonna take over he's gonna lay those questions on us and then he's got his own as well and i can't wait i'm terrified 
That's what I meant by can't wait, Norman. Yeah. I went, uh, I am terrified, and uh, we'll just go into this uh, with, uh, you know, with our, our expectations in check. Uh, so, Earl, it's all your show, man. This is the time we get to hand the keys to Mission Log over to you. Okay, and I will try not to drive it straight into the ravine. <laughs> our first question is from Mary Virginia. She asks, I would like a discussion comparing contrasting comparing slash contrasting the endings of necessary evil versus things past mm-hmm. okay so if memory serves uh of course things past is that very very dark episode where we get to step into odo's mind uh when he was serving on Tarek nor and was part of this execution of Bajorans who uh, the the evidence against him was circumstantial mm-hmm. and he was just doing his job as we said you know just doing his job and and letting that happen even though it was a miscarriage of justice and then necessary evil is where we found out that Kira had killed a collaborator mm-hmm. is that right yeah and then you kind of left with this thing at the end of is Odo okay with that and how will he reconcile that with his image of Kira in his mind and and his feelings for her hmm I personally I'm a little torn on that one I I, I think the the nice thing about what DS9 did over time is that particularly when it comes to Odo and Kira you could let their friendship and what ultimately became romantic really build over time and really lay those uh, building blocks where they made sense even if you had something horrible (laughs) happen in both of their their past I wonder and I, I don't want to speak for Mary Virginia here but I wonder if the question is more along the lines of like are they both able to see some forgiveness in each other because they both see the terrible thing that uh, that each one of them did under different circumstances? You know, I think that there was a little bit of maybe a resolution, a soft resolution to this in universe because one of the last episodes, or at least in the in the final arc, it may have been. I'm not sure if it was attacking into the wind or maybe the episode before that. It could have been Strange Bedfellows, but mm-hmm. that's when Gulrasat was pushing Kira's buttons about Odo being an observer. And she obviously, you know, she bristled about that. So was Odo an observer during the, during the you know, the, the justice that he was dispensing as constable on Tarak mm-hmm. Nor? Or was Kira an observer in dispensing her own kind of justice and necessary evil in order to, what, write the timeline? I guess it really all depends on your point of view. I mean, Deep Space Nine is a very POV type of show. Like, whose shoes are you going to inhabit watching these characters and which side are you going to take? Because I don't think that there's a truth to it. There is just the observation of a certain point of view. I mean, that sounds a little evasive, but I think that that's where Deep Space Nine enters that, you know, shades of gray territory. It's a very evasive type of show. Well, it's kind of perfect that you have two characters whose psyches and past experience are going to be traumatically affected by this and and it would inform everything for them going forward mm-hmm. I, it, trauma might be not quite the right word here because i don't think they're necessarily traumatized but they're haunted by this so it's kind of perfect then that you have these two characters carrying this around that they would find some meeting of the minds and meeting of the heart so 
Yeah. I don't know. I feel like those are two episodes I'd almost have to go back and rewatch, um, maybe even back to back. But then you have to put them into context of when they occur in the series mm-hmm. and how that feeds the rest of what we know about those characters over time. Maybe, maybe, maybe Mary Virginia is trying to see if there's a point of hypocrisy that is supposed mm-hmm. to be addressed here. You know, that's a great question. Now, remember yeah. when Andrew said uh, in in what we left behind, he said that uh, the stories that are being told are coming from a standpoint of uh, interpretation, uh, human emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know probably misconstrued understandings of people's uh, recollections of stories, etc., etc. I think that that's where Akira and Odo maybe are after maybe trying to block a lot of these uh, very traumatic experiences during the occupation and trying to move forward. It's like, hey, look, we did what we did. We survived. We're not squeaky clean, but we still have to move forward with our lives. And maybe that's what brought them together initially. Yeah, it could be. A uh, buddy of mine that I used to watch... Our local station, uh, back when these shows were all new, we used to watch Next Gen and DS9 on Saturday nights because they came one right after the other. And I have always remembered his immediate assessment. Like He said this during the end credits of watching things pass for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, less necessary, but more evil. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And um, yeah. I'm not necessarily saying that's my opinion, but I yeah. always remember him saying that because it's just like, how did you come up with that so quick? Were you thinking yeah. about that during the whole show? <laughs> he managed to do it all in four words. That's great. Yeah. yeah. We have a question from Patrick here. And it, this really isn't a question. It's more of a statement. Garrick, queer icon? No question. Just discuss the gay space lizard. We all need more gay space lizard in our lives. <laughs> we do. You know, there, there should be more gay space lizard in Star Trek and just uh, everywhere for that matter. <laughs> um, I, well, Norman, I know that you're a fan. So mm-hmm. you, you want to kick us off there? You know, it, it's interesting. Um, thank you, Patrick, for that uh, submitting that question. Uh, I think it's interesting that we're still using labeling as a way to describe characters in a Star Trek show. And especially where, say, uh, Garrick's concerned or the the lesbian kiss, quote-unquote, the lesbian kiss and rejoined, I always found it interesting and maybe a little bit troubling that Star Trek fans still tend to use these sexual identity labels in order to describe characters who, in the future that we are supposed to believe in, we are past these labeling uh, mechanics of gender, of sexuality, of fluidity, of that nature. I I guess it's the only way that we can identify certain characters in a way that they need to be identified. But I just see Garrick as as just is. He's just, let me put it this way. In Doctor Who, Captain Jack Harkness, he's just a force of nature. He's a sexual force of nature, gay, straight, bi. He just is. He's there. And he he affects the storyline as he affects the storyline. I felt Garrick being the same way. Garrick is an alien. Can we really uh, label him as being this sexuality or that sexuality? Does that really apply to male or female aliens? Does male and female really apply uh, when we are looking at categorizing you know future species? I guess it does. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I just find it that Garrick is one of the greatest characters I think ever written in Star Trek. I think that Andrew Robinson plays him to 
the hilt of perfection. And I think that every single episode that he's in, not only does he steal the episode, but he makes the overall narrative of the tapestry of the world that he's in, he's building far better for him being there. That's my opinion on Garrick. Well, look, I'm going to push back a little bit here, Norman. Uh, Not that I disagree with you about how awesome Garrick is or about how awesome Andy Robinson is as Garrick, but I, I think to help put Patrick's question into context here, we're talking about Star Trek in the 90s. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Star Trek that took 25 plus years to get an episode like The Outcast on TV, which he, even then ha- has some great positive points and positive moments and then some that don't play as well mm-hmm. o- over time. And this is a show that for as progressive as it is very often pulled its punches when it came to exploring uh, sexuality out of the mainstream sort of accepted uh, gender roles, Mm -hmm. you know? So for a character like Garrick, who when we first met him on DS9, I said, look, regardless of how he identifies, regardless of who he is interested in, the leading, uh, the, the leading sort of force within him is seduction. He is seducing whoever gets in his path because that is his, that it's his way in to get information, to manipulate, to do what, whatever it is he wants. And it happened at those moments that his object of seduction was Dr. Bashir. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as that making him a queer icon, I say adopt it, embrace it, accept it, absolutely, <laughs> because there's not enough, there was definitely not enough of that, uh, there was none of that on Star Trek at the time, and for us now, and particularly, you know, they bring it up in uh, what we left behind, uh, for audiences now to be able to look at that and go, wow, okay, here, here's a character who was actually breaking out of of what we were seeing, which is even on Cardassia, yeah, it's a far-off planet with a totally different species in the far future, but you basically have two genders. You basically have male and female Cardassians, and, you know, look at Bajor. You basically have male and female Bajorans playing these kind of accepted gender roles. So if we can be a little revisionist about it and say, that's our gay space lizard <laughs> or or bi space lizard or omnisexual space lizard i say take it and run with it <laughs> i'm, I'm oh. here for it i love it i mean i have no problem again with with the labeling it's just mm. i think that maybe today maybe say like in discovery or picard if a character like that was introduced it would probably be uh, handled differently Although, it reminds me of a conversation that we had with uh, one of our subscribers and listeners, Valeria. We were discussing this on Mission Log Live. And Mm. I think the point of Valeria's conversation was, why are we introducing characters in Discovery that are gender fluid, but coming from a point of a traumatic source? Mm. Garrick, if you want to put him, quote unquote, as Patrick's saying, as a queer icon, then is... Is it fair that the queer icon of Deep Space Nine is a disavowed assassin as opposed to, a, say, a Starfleet officer? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, sure. I mean, sure, yeah. because of what Garrick did and, and kind of like the evolution of his character, did he do right? Did he do wrong? Yes. But is that iconic for, you know, a representation of a character for a certain sexual direction or a certain sexual identity? Maybe there can be some victory claimed there in that the show never labels him explicitly. Now, the performance is definitely 
leaning in that direction, but the show never has the need to label him one way or the other. Now, he does have something going on with Zeal in that opening volley of season six, mm-hmm. but even that relationship is never explicitly nailed down because trying to nail down anything about Garrick is like trying to nail smoke to the wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, the show absolutely would not have been what it was without him. Because, you know, he's your on-ramp into learning about Cardassian society. You know, other than that, you know, before that we had, you know, David Warner talking about distasteful eggs. Or if you actually wanted to take Dukat at his word on anything he said about Cardassian society. But Garrick is your on-ramp to the Obsidian Order, to Cardassian society as a whole. So he's not coming from a traumatized place. Now, he does, you know, later admit to some discomfort because he's among people who consider him an enemy. Even with that in mind, he seems to roll with it pretty gracefully. Well, let's not forget, he's got some serious daddy issues with uh, an Auburn Tane. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But uh, all in all, he is a deeply complex character, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think we all agree that we wish that there were more of him uh, in the series as a whole. We have a question from Julie here. I am very curious about how you interpret the ending and what you think it is trying to say. Oh, nice question, Julie. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) And Uh, go. Yeah, exactly. Go. Go. Uh, oh, you want me to take this first? Sure. Okay. Um, I, I am. It, we're talking about yeah the ending of Deep Space Nine, the the finale episode of Deep Space Nine. I am still deeply confused and conflicted uh, by what's going on in there um, because I think they made some great choices and I think they made some not so great choices. At best, at best, I think what is lovely about the finale of Deep Space Nine is that we got to spend time with these characters just being themselves. They've been through the worst of it, and we get to decompress with them and see where they're going. You know, just seeing Kira in command of Deep Space Nine is great. Seeing, um, I I got so much more out of uh, Bashir and O'Brien saying goodbye to each other than I did from their heartfelt confession in the hallways of Sloane's mind in extreme measures you know so those moments i thought were great and it is the only time in star trek that we had a finale that really felt like okay we're wrapping it up we're we're finishing this off and we're just going to let these characters now be in your imagination as opposed to sort of hint or tease like with next generation there's more to come there'll be a movie there'll be you know uh, that that kind of thing or the tos where there just was no satisfying ending until we got to the movies 20 years later well starting 10 years later and then on into 20 years later but the problem with what is it trying to say i i think it gets lost in its way of trying to say anything when it comes to Cisco's story in particular. You know, Benjamin Cisco is the, by default, lead character here, the most important character on Deep Space Nine. And I feel so unsatisfied with the way he is treated uh, with this rush to get him to the fire caves just so he can have a fight with Dukat and carry out the prophet's ultimate purpose, which is to burn a book. 
So, uh, and then whisk him away from, I, I cannot stress this enough, his family and his son, and for everything that DS9 got right with his relationship to Jake and how this was just, you know, one of the best expressions of family that Star Trek has done up until this point, to just take that away and say, yeah, it's, it's mysterious because the prophets, wow, they're, they're powerful. Mm-hmm. I, that just leaves me completely cold. And I'm not convinced that it was trying to say anything other than, look how mysterious they are. So, uh, Julie, uh, I, I could go on, but, you know, we got to keep this to a reasonable length. Yeah, I think it was <laughs> called uh, Reference Our Episode on What we leave, what You Left Behind. Because I think that yeah. we said a mm-hmm. lot of what I think Julie is looking for in this question. Yeah. Uh, there's not much I can add there, John, because I was now and, and, and when we did that recording still on board with there's something very problematic with the way they, they ended Cisco's story where I think the writers expect the audience to accept this nebulous answer of Cisco. Yeah. Every other character has to move on with their lives and has to live with the decisions that they have made over the past seven years up until the end of this series, except for Cisco. And if you want me to boil it down to a very honest statement... Because you know me, I love being honest. Mm-hmm. If you are of the prophets, if you are the chosen one of the prophets, you do not have to answer to mortal law, period. Mm. That's what I came away with at the end. Cisco yeah. had to answer for nothing. Every single yeah. decision that he made from when he stepped on the station to when he involved himself in the Dominion War, where he spoke up for hundreds of thousands of Romulan lives lost hundreds of thousands of Cardassian lives lost, obfuscating the truth about the the changeling cure, keeping that from moving forward in possible negotiations and peace treaty talks, to whisking himself or being whisked away by the prophets because he's their chosen one. Everyone else has to live with the fallout of those choices on the station in one degree or another, except him. And I don't understand why. I guess if you're a celestial being, mortal law need not apply. Yeah. I'm not happy with that being a message at all. Now, let me attach just kind of a pop quiz to uh, Julie's question here. In the um, (laughs) Deep Space Nine (laughs) companion, uh, Terry Uh Run and Paula Block's book, a note is made of the fact that Avery Brooks was not crazy about the ending. He totally landed on the same square as as you did with regard to, okay, and his family is less important than the gods. Yeah. And, but, you know, to Avery Brooks, you know, this read as, oh, you know, here's another, you know, absentee African-American father, which as much as we would like to think that the show is not trying to go there, this was a script handed to him by a writer's room full of white guys. Yeah. Is well, Mr. Uh, Brooks justified in 
not liking that plot development. He he is, and and I will uh, I'll take it a step further, Earl, because I you and I have both read the same book, and that became kind of my bible during the production of Mission Log for this. There is more detail there where Avery Brooks objected to the original ending, which was just, and then Ben Sisko goes off to the prophets. Okay. He objected, so they reshot that scene in uh, the wormhole alien land where he says to Cassidy Yates, you know, I'll be back a year from now or yesterday or whatever. Yeah, whatever it was that they landed on, that was the reshoot to sort of meet Avery halfway there and say, oh, okay, well, well we're, we're saying that he'll be back and you just – you know the audience can interpret that however they want and i'm here to tell you i'm going to interpret that unless the next shot was ben cisco back on ds9 hugging his son i interpret that as these supposedly non-corporeal non-linear aliens who live in the wormhole still being clueless and not getting it and not allowing Ben Sisko, the agency on autonomy, to get it and to do what is right. And what is right is to say, thanks, wormhole aliens. You can bring me back here in 100 years when I've died of natural causes. But in the meantime, I'd like to see my unborn child grow up, and I would like to spend more quality time with my son now that the war is over. So that ending still peeves me. Mm. <laughs> Okay, we have a question from Paul, one of uh, one of the Paul Patrol. Mm-hmm. Yes, our Paul contingent. What character do you think had the best and most fulfilling character arc from season one or their first appearance until the finale? May I field this first? Please. Everybody. You, you just jump in. Everybody man. but Cisco. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. Bravo. You want me to, you want me to preach some truth? Um, preach it. So yeah. actually, like for me, I think Kira did. I really do. I think Mm. Kira did. uh, I remember when I watched Emissary, I felt that that Nana was channeling a lot of maybe what Michelle Forbes brought to Ensign Rowe because we know that Ensign Rowe was supposed to have been kind of like the crossover character from the next generation into Deep Space Nine, but things happened and then Nana was brought on board. So I never felt that she was leaning into her own talent at the very beginning and kind of channeling a lot of Michelle Forbes's like brusqueness and toughness that she created for Ensign Rose specifically. Mm-hmm. But as we saw, as we saw Kira get challenged by elements of her faith, serving the station, falling in love, falling out of love, Burrell coming back in various forms, losing him, then losing him again into the mirror universe, but it's not really a loss for anyone. <laughs> and then falling in love with Odo. And then finally, you know, along that line, you know, she's starting to like let go of a lot of a lot of her guilt and a lot of, of the pain that she's carried from, you know, being part of uh, the resistance to now. It's like, this is like uh, the Damar story that I wanted to see, but we saw it in Kira in a far more extended, more nuanced narrative. And I think that even even Nana's performance has has really won me over time. 
And that's that you know uh, answering what Paul's saying you know from you know uh, season one to the finale because there are other there are characters that I think that have evolved uh, tremendously but you know we only saw them for a couple seasons or maybe for a handful of episodes like Demar yeah uh, so for me it's it's probably Kira over over anyone else cool. Yeah, I mean, look, I agree with you about Cisco not being in the running. I agree with you about Damar just being so satisfying. But we didn't get a whole lot of them, but we did get just enough of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I and I and I thought that build was just brilliantly written. And my God, Casey plays him so well. Pretty much everybody got growth. I, I love the change in Martok. I love that Bashir, you can tell that the writers and actor and probably directors by extension weren't quite figuring out this character in the beginning, but boy, did they figure him out later on. I'm going to take probably a little bit of a dark horse candidate here, though, and say Odo, <laughs> because I feel like Odo, rightfully so, we started out, he, he's the, the hard-nosed, uh, hard-boiled detective from a 1940s novel, planted into this, uh, you know, the, the Rick's Cafe of Space, and he has this dark past with the Cardassians and being a, a collaborator, at least an employee of the Cardassians, and he is somebody who... By definition uh, of who he is, he he doesn't have these humanoid feelings. He he, and he cannot fit in in so many ways. And then you fast forward that up to the scenes in what you leave behind that affected me the most. I tell you, it's ugly cry twice. Every time Kira says to him on the promenade, "I will take you home. I will take you back to your planet." And then that final goodbye at the end. In any other hands, it would feel very cheesy and very forced to see him in the tuxedo and then walking away, but it it affects me mm-hmm. every time. And I, I love him, and I feel like that is such a satisfying growth and endpoint for that character. And an endpoint that doesn't feel final, it feels earned, and it feels like, and you're you're happy, but also heartbroken, and you feel like, well, this is somebody who I could and would want to see again. We have a two-for question from Alan here. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> one, one for each of you. There, oh. there is one for each of you. All right. Okay. For Norman, are there any episodes from season one through three that you would have wanted to discuss on Mission Log? If so, what was your take? Oh, uh, I've always wanted to do duet. I've always wanted to to break that down uh, with John mission log style, because that's one of those great shades of gray type of episodes where you're trying to figure out like why Maritza was doing what he was doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is another episode where Kira had a lot of emotional growth throughout the course of the episode where not everything was as she believed to be. And obviously with Maritza uh, channeling because he was so psychologically broken that he thought that he was, you know, the goal or a goal mm-hmm. uh, or his boss, you know, during the occupation where he couldn't identify any other way aside from trying to, you know, to, I guess, uh, try and find forgiveness for all of the sins that he committed that he didn't even really commit, but for the, I guess, to represent the, the, the punishment or the justice that he needed to, 
I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say about, you know, what he wanted to do, because it it's really hard. And, and, and I ne- again, obviously, I'm conflicted about how I'm trying to piece my thoughts together because I never did this on Mission Log. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is that duet's something that I really wanted to do. I really wanted to do uh, past tense because I really wanted to cover the Bell mm-hmm. Riots especially with what's going on today and especially how they handled it because I thought it was really interesting uh, that mm. in got that would have been 93 4 when that came out something like that Past yeah. was early 95 it was the last okay. episode before Voyager started so that's oh wow right. that's what uh, 95, 2005, 2015, yeah. 15 years. 20, yeah, 27 years. That's a lot of time between yeah. what's happening right now, kind of like what we're seeing in Picard season two, mm-hmm. and then. So, and it's two parter, so it's always fun to take, <laughs> take care of a two parter. And then a lot of the stuff that happened with, um, you know, uh, the die is cast, because I, I really wanted to get into what was happening with the Romulans, the Obsidian Order, and Aubrey Tain. Um, I thought that was a lot of like just fascinating character uh, study to get involved with. So yeah, um, I, those are just a handful of episodes, but for the record, and I've said this before on D space nine, I really do think that seasons one through three were far more interesting to me from uh, a series growth standpoint than seasons four through seven, Hmm. because I felt that they tried more. They experimented more Maybe that's why they got into a little bit of network trouble, because their ratings may have not reflected uh, the success of where TNG was uh, in parity. But I do think that Deep Space Nine had just a more unique story happening that was culminating at the very season finale of season three, right before I came on to Mission Log. And I never felt that it retained its that fingerprint of trying something different. They kind of went a little bit more formulaic towards the back half of the series. And I thought that was unfortunate. I, uh, I have to agree with you on that one. I, the big thing that I felt we lost going into the Klingon war arc that introduced Worf was that we lost Bajoran religion as a useful parallel to earth religion not to any one particular earth religion, but you know, you were dealing with the fact that they were allowing religion to shape public policy and, you know, to dictate things in that sphere. And if things continued to develop from that standpoint of, you know, we are going to look at this as a, you know, as a real religion and not as just the breeding ground for Kai Win. Who knows what sort of truly useful, truly applicable real-world messaging we could have gotten out of that. That would, uh, you know, definitely make it even more relevant today than virtually anything in the Klingon arc. Agreed. Okay, so Alan has a question for you as well, John. Have you found any differences logistically, thematically, etc.? and how you discuss DS9 for Mission Log compared to the previous shows. Yeah, I mean, uh, compared to TOS and TNG, which are both very much cut from the same cloth, um, DS9 was different by design, and therefore Mission Log has to adapt a little bit to that. Um, There are... Uh, obviously, there are long character arcs and there are long story arcs that we have to be aware of. Um, and there was a certain point early in covering DS9 that 
things were a little tough. We were trying to, to figure out, okay, does the mission log formula actually fit here? And I feel very strongly that the mission log formula does fit, even if we're even if we're having different types of discussions about DS9. It's okay, because at the end of the day, writers are trying to get across an idea. And that idea might be Star Trek morals, meanings, messages writ large, or they might be an idea about psychology or, or as you were just pointing out, you know, human experience of religion or, or something like that. So, yeah, DS9 is different, but I, I don't think we had to reinvent the wheel here to approach it. E even with DS9 telling long story arcs when it does, each episode aired week to week. And just like an audience watching it back in the 90s, here we are in the 2020s watching these episodes week to week and just focusing on that story. And even if we did know it was coming ahead, really getting that out of our minds to say, all right, what is the point right now? What is the point with this hour of television <laughs> that some writer producer was trying to get across? We'll get right back to our roundtable wrap-up of DS9, but first, a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Hey, you know, using the internet without ExpressVPN is like checking in your baggage at the airport without a lock. So here's the thing. You think that your stuff is private, but you never know who's going through it. So it's like, let's say you, you showed up and, and you've got, you know, uh, something embarrassing like... Um, Oh, I don't know, uh, the Voyager Companion and uh, the making of Star Trek and your uh, personal playback device has a bunch of episodes of Star Trek and uh, it's all wrapped up in your Star Trek t-shirts. And look, I'm just... Ooh, what about that statue from Ryza? What is that called? Ooh, the, the Horgon? Oh, yeah. Well, see, I, I try to hide that also in some Star Trek ah. t-shirts. But what I'm saying is you might have things in your luggage that you don't want people looking at and you can't control that. And that is like going on the internet without a VPN, and in particular, ExpressVPN. So even if you put a lock on your luggage, if you don't have a VPN, it's like being able to cut through that lock on your luggage. That's what internet service providers can do, and they can see every single website you visit. They just unlock the lock. They can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants when they want to use that data to target you. I, I want no part of that. So that is why I use ExpressVPN, because it allows you so much freedom and freedom from prying eyes on the Internet. You can browse anonymously. When you use ExpressVPN, ISPs can't see your online activity. Your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. Your data is encrypted for maximum protection. And most important, it is easy. You open up the app, you click one button, and you are on. And when I say you open up the app, you can do it on all your devices, phones, laptops. You can do it on your router. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. Be secure and feel secure and secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash mission log. We have a BC rolling a photon grenade into the room. No, 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 no. <laughs> and hopefully pulling the pin so we don't have to. <laughs> 
his question. Can we now have the hopefully brief... Oh, you're optimistic. Seriously. The hopefully brief discussion of how Deep Space Nine would have almost certainly not existed if not for Babylon 5. Okay, look, I, uh, I, I'm i just going to stay out of this because I don't know enough about B5. I do know that we touched on it and engaged. You guys are the experts. Uh, you got 30 seconds. BC, <laughs> what do you want? Yeah. What do you Who? want from this discussion? Uh, no comment. <laughs> how brief is that? What? <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, in, in a nutshell, that's really almost impossible to answer, not because I'm a fan of both, and I'm certainly Babylon Five is my favorite show of all time, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna weigh that, you know that the passion for that show and the prejudice I may have over Deep Space Nine because of Babylon Five into this answer. The reason why I say it's impossible is because you're asking uh, it, it's the chicken or the egg question. Would Deep Space Nine have existed if if J. Michael Straczynski did not pitch Babylon Five to a variety of networks? That's that's only for them to answer. J. Malkus Krasinski wrote a line for Jakar, and Jakar said there are truth is a three-edged sword. Your side, their side, and the truth itself. If you ask people at Paramount that we came up with the idea organically, that's their truth. If J. Michael Krasinski has, without a shred of doubt, with all the proof in the world, that he's the one who pitched the show in a framework of a pitch not in detailed form, that's his version of the truth. But what is the truth in and of itself? It's very well possible that Deep Space Nine could have evolved organically up to a point, and maybe because there was pressure of this new upcoming writer who was gaining popularity after a huge success with Masters of the Universe with Filmation, he pitched an idea of a space station. People at Paramount said, we wanted to do a space station, we better get ours first out on the air before another network gets theirs out on the air and steals our share. That happens all the time in Hollywood with pitches. Hunt for Red October and Crimson Tide came out at the same time for a reason, right? Uh, There are always these circumstances, uh, coincidental, serendipitous, or otherwise, when two franchises of very similar effect happen at nearly the same time. For me personally, I really don't care anymore. I'm glad that I have both shows because both shows have given my life value and have been able to afford me the opportunity to do this. So if I took a hardline stance for Babylon 5 being greater than Deep Space Nine, I wouldn't be doing this right now, right? So I'm glad that they're both out there and I have no answer to it because I literally have no facts about it. <laughs> what about you, Earl? Because I know you know Babylon. You were, you were like way into the production end of Babylon 5 um, behind the scenes type stuff. Well, I was, you know, I, I, I was there um, <laughs> on the local station end. Even on the local station end, and as a fan of both shows as they were rolling out, I was happy to have them. I think people who were quite a bit younger than us arrived in a post-Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy world where the geek wars were won. And here comes the MCU. And here comes more Star Trek. And, oh, by the way, Star Wars is coming back. Oh, and now it's going to be on, you know, streaming series as well. We are spoiled for choice today. There's literally more than I can keep up with. In 1994... Not so much. 
you know, I remember I was keeping up with Next Gen, DS9, Babylon 5, Highlander, and that was really about all that was on the air. You didn't, you didn't even have Hercules and Xena on yet. I think Hercules showed up later in 94. You could literally run out of shows to keep track of. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. If there was a an ironclad case to be made, but no one ever took it to court, then I'm not sure you know, who we're supposed to side with. And I prefer not to side with anyone. It's just, I just enjoyed having three or four shows that I really enjoyed on at the same time. That has not always been the case in my lifetime. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm not going to claim that Buck Rogers in the 25th century was a sterling piece of science <laughs> fiction, but man, back in the day, that was it. I don't know. This This kind of comes back to... You know, the whole Discovery versus Orville debate. It's like, there is no debate. I watch them both. I like them both. I don't see a problem. Mm-hmm. Nice job, BC. Way to go. And grenade diffused. We have a question from Jordan here. What do you think the impact of being on a station versus a mobile ship was on the stories and messages they were trying to tell. Did the Star Trek format work just fine in one location, the exploring being the aliens coming to them, or does it really need to move around to explore, in other words, them going to the aliens? Was the Defiant introduced because it just really didn't work as well in one place and they needed to break out and leave the station? That's an interesting idea, Jordan. Um <clears throat> I think I, I am not opposed to Star Trek pushing its own envelope when it can. So do a show on a space station? Sure. Why not? We, we've seen loads of space stations in Star Trek. Um, we just haven't spent as much time on them as we have on DS9. And I always am a fan of going back to Earth when you can, going back to a planet when you can. Just kind of check in and, and keep the show and the characters grounded a bit literally and figuratively, however you want to look at it. Um, That said, uh, as much as I think the good intentions were of having DS9 start off with, you know, the the Casablanca uh, style and, you know, Rick's Cafe in space and everybody shows up there, um, it could get a little confining, especially when you say, okay, well, the one planet that is nearby is Bajor, and then everything on the side of the wormhole, well, are we just running into more humanoids there? What, what's happening there? Um, I, you know, I, I would have preferred that they had maybe split the difference early on and given us a ship like Defiant early on or, or something just to break them out of that constant storytelling on the station. I will point out that, you know, now in season four of Discovery and going back to last season of Discovery, a lot of that story takes place at Starfleet headquarters, which is a big old space station, <laughs> you know, and I I like that it, it, because it, it gives me what I want, which is, again, you have this grounded place for people to go back to. Um, so it, you don't just feel totally detached from everything that's happening kind of politically, socially out there in the galaxy. So, uh, you know, it, it just kind of depends on how you look at it. I'm, I'm not opposed to that being a thing in Star Trek again space station that we get to visit very often or you kind of get to know the characters there 
But I think over seven seasons, they realize at a certain point, hey, we need to get these people on a ship and get them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I remember one of the biggest uh, controversies about Deep Space Nine when it first came out is that it removed the monologue in the credits. Because the mm. monologue in the credits mm. set the tone for the original series in Next Generation, where the captain said to seek out new life, you know, new civilizations, and to boldly go where no one or no man has gone before. That set the, the theme of exploring. When Deep Space Nine, in its opening credits, just showed this solitary station, like in the vastness of space, you're like, oh, this is different. Because the monologue mm. is no longer there. The feeling of going anywhere, the dynamic motion of the ship, like whooshing like past the screen and seeing all the dimensions of space past, you know, shooting past the sides of the ship and in warp and the stars and all of the the trappings of uh, having a very dynamic, very engaging credit scene. That was all gone. So you felt solitary as soon as you started watching Deep Space Nine, even though the credits, uh, the score itself was very kind of haunting. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think that uh, that. It confines the story any which way. Great writing can find its way out of any confinement. Mm. You just have to have great, consistent writing. And the one thing that, John, you and I have consistently praised Deep Space Nine for, the quality of the character writing. That's most here, important, here. right? Yep. You can have yep. like great episodes on starships in a room. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have two characters talking about certain things just inside... 10 forward or inside the captain's quarters, right? Or inside the mess hall, as long as the writing is great. But if the writing's not great, it doesn't matter where you are seated, flying in a shuttle, you know, uh, you know, on a planet, it doesn't matter because bad writing is bad writing. Great writing is great writing. That's, I think it's just as simple as that. Chris has a question. What characters or plots do you feel most benefited from DS9 serialization and who or what, if any, suffered for it? Ooh. In later seasons, Cisco's history gets retconned, transforming him from uneasy religious figure to certified demigod. <laughs> Put that on my tax returns. Culminating in his ascension in the series finale. Is there an allegory or message to take from this final arc, or were the writers just looking for stakes? Yeah, that That is perfectly phrased, Chris. And, and I tell you what, because we, we kind of talked about this earlier when we talked about those character arcs, and, and I think I'll come back to, well, in this case, I'm going to say Damar. I think Damar benefited from this serialization quite well because, you know, remember, the introduction of Damar, it was a character with two lines. Then they introduces alcoholism, and they had not planned out where this was going to go, but they found the character, and just the character naturally led the way for the writers. So I I think that is a a huge earned arc for that character, even in that relatively short period of time. And man, Chris, you already nailed it. You already put the answer in your question. Um, Cisco's history gets retconned. Yes. So I feel like he benefited the least from these long arcs uh, that we had built up over the, the course of Deep Space Nine. Uh, I rest my case. <laughs> I mean, I think Martok did. I think Martok uh, gained mm-hmm. a great deal of consistency through the, I'm going to say soft serialization, because I'm still not convinced that Deep Space Nine is a serialized series. Serialization, mm-hmm. by the definition, has to do with the, the continuation of plot point and storyline from episode to episode and episode to varying degrees. But I never really felt that in, say, like the first three, four, five seasons. There were elements in there that were always 
returned to from time to time, but not in a serialized way. Serial, the true serialization of Deep Space Nine really came in, in season seven, the last nine, ten episodes, if you take what we leave behind as a right, two-parter. Right. That's true serialization, where you end one story and literally pick up where the next story starts. So I don't think that uh, a lot of the characters were that, that benefited that way. There were great of developments over time, sure, but you can have great character development over the course of six, seven years. But probably the character that that benefited from serialization the most, Damar, hands down. Without serialization mm-hmm. in the last nine episodes, we would have never had his story uh, pushed to completion, right? And and really, really well thought out. It's too bad that they squandered a couple of hours worth of time, you know, in those last nine hours, but. And, you know, that's that's beside the point. Go listen to Dogs of War. So, <laughs> But I also think that you're right. Yeah. Cisco, I think that the more they tried to serialize the story, the less they knew what to do with him. We have a question from Jason, presumably of Star Command. <laughs> Where other Treks have often found their episodes centering around a subset of their main cast, such as Kirk and Spock, or Data and Picard, I feel that DS9 was particularly strong at utilizing and developing their whole primary cast over the series as a whole, along with a robust secondary cast. What were your surprises from this? Who do you think was best used to their fullest potential? And this may also dovetail into the answers from Chris's question. Who would you like to have seen more of? And there's a note here, Norm, I'll give you Garrick as a freebie, so you can pick a second character as well. <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess uh, I guess I'll answer Jason's question directly. Actually, I liked what I saw of Garrick. Um, he, he had a, a very robust story. If I had... In the secondary cast, if I had to see a character grow a little bit more from some of the great material that he was given, it would have been Rom. I think Rom was a fascinating character. Rom has the only episode in Star Trek to this date that directly ties into social Marxism. Bar Association. Mm -hmm. He literally quotes Karl Marx when he says, workers of the world unite, all you have to lose is your chains. You know, that's a 18th, 19th century philosophy in the 24th century about labor. I've never seen that before in Star Trek. And and Rom being kind of like the, the de facto Grand Nagus at the end because the, the Ferengi culture is changing into a less capitalist and more socialist type of government where women can wear clothes and trade and make money. And then, you know, uh, his conversation with Quark about how things are benefiting from this uh, extreme change in the way that the Frankie are evolving as a culture. I really wanted to see like where, where Rom was inspired by um, certain events that prompted these changes over the course of time and not just one episode here and one episode there. I also wanted to see more of his relationship with Lita. I, I think that there was a really good story to be told there and we just didn't get enough of, of him or both of them. Yeah. I, I'm on a similar page with you. I mean, I, I think what's fun about DS nine is that, you know, you see all the cast photos with the main group, the main, all the people from ops, right. But the more you watch it, you just go like, wow, but, but then there's Garrick and then there's Damar and, there's all this craziness with Gold Dakot and 
my skin keeps crawling every time Kai Wen comes on screen. You know, there are all these wonderfully developed characters outside of the, the main group. And I wish that Next Gen had been that good with their time, with their seven seasons, because I feel like there's so much more development that could have been done with the main cast, but also with others we could have gotten to know on the Enterprise. I think, uh, yeah, you know, Garrick... I think they used to his full potential, but there were times that I felt like, wow, we haven't seen him in a while. I wish we'd get some more Garrick stories in here, even just a little bit, even just a scene or two, just to have him there. Uh, I A little more Rom would have been fine. Um, honestly, I wish that Vic had been introduced around season three or season four. We got such good stuff out of Vic Fontaine but they crammed it all into that last season. And I feel like with just a little bit, you know, don't overplay it, but just a little bit more, we could have delved into that mystery of why he is the way he is, maybe who Felix is, how that all came about. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you run the risk of having the hollow suite run amok story. Uh, but I thought they did something really smart and sensitive with how they use Vic. So I would have liked to have seen some of that from earlier. And I also wish, you know, if we're talking about characters that weren't fleshed out well, Earl, this kind of goes back to your comment earlier about what we were getting out of studying Bajor and its religious life in those first three seasons. Having a character like Kai Wen is fascinating because, yes, she's the villain, but if we're going to do this exploration and show Bajorans as a mirror of how humans experience religion and how that can be a force for good, a force for bad, how it permeates politics, how it can affect social order, etc. Instead of just having her as the mustache twirling villain at a certain point, I feel like we needed more of her and more of her in contrast to the rest of Bajoran religious life. So they played her very well. When you get to the end of the series and, you know, it's paw race going up your nose and fireball shooting out of hands, <laughs> I, I start to tune out. <laughs> That's our new band name, Paw Wraiths Up Your Nose. <laughs> Let's make that happen. <laughs> Let's do it. Matt asks, DS9 really became a stalwart universe within a universe, so how does it fit into the grand scheme of things? Where did the show succeed best in channeling Roddenberry's visions, trademark, patent pending, and the <laughs> fundamental origins of Trek? And on the flip side, where was DS9 at its strongest in forging a path of its own? Our listeners love leading, asking leading questions, don't they, John? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go to it, Norm. You know, I think that we've covered this a lot, you know, in, in a lot of yeah. our discussions. And I think that, in my opinion, I think in terms of channeling Roddenberry's vision far beyond the stars is, I think, a direct ascendant to the original series. You know, as yeah. not only from a storytelling standpoint, but from, I, I guess, kind of like a, an era standpoint. You know, that was 1962, that there was that uh, that 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 story was told in, or in like the late 1950s at least. Yeah, late 50s, I think. Yeah. So it was in that same era of uh, there was uh, sexual oppression for women in the workplace. You know, uh, obviously uh, Kira's character was channeling DC Fontana and what happened uh, to uh, to her when she had to change mm -hmm. or hide her name to hide her gender so that she could write for a major publication. Obviously, Benny's storyline is paramount you know, to success, emotional success and uh, uh, 
story success, you know, of Far Beyond the Stars. I can't say enough of that. I think that's literally like one mm-hmm. of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen in my entire life. It just happens to be great Star Trek as well because it does channel Gene Roddenberry's vision of trying to take the socio-political nature of that time through the guise of a science fiction story in a way because we did start with the prophets and how they showed Benny this vision of what or how to find inspiration from struggle. And that struggle came from directly from Cisco's past as a black man in America who was being completely, uh, just completely abused by every facet of society. Now, where I think that on the 180 degree flip side of that, I think that in the pale moonlight is also one of the best episodes of TV I have ever seen from a dramatic standpoint, but not from mm-hmm. the the standpoint of Gene Roddenberry's vision of trying to find the best possible path through the worst possible situation in order to promote the optimism of how humanity can move forward with better choices. Cisco's choice was terrible in that not only his choice to speak for a government that he had no right to speak for, but his choice to eradicate evidence of his crimes at the very end because he could live with it. His words, or the character's words, Mm -hmm. not mine. So, like I said, when Sisko became a demigod and spirited himself away with the prophets, he answered for none of this none of this and that still again is problematic when it comes to humanity being able to answer for and being able to move past its own weaknesses and frailties to find the better solution and more optimistic future as in trademarked gene roddenberry's vision what about you yeah uh so matt uh, I, I think, you know, and hopefully I've made a case for this earlier to say that I, I think that Star Trek is a big enough, flexible enough format and universe that you can explore a lot of different areas. And for this show, for DS9 to pick this far off corner of the quadrant and not have all the luxurious trappings of a galaxy class starship. I think it's a great starting point for a series. And I think it's a great way to bring in new and interesting and more nuanced characters. So I am fully on board with that. And to the idea of exploring what Gene wanted to explore, which is the nature of humanity and humanity always trying to be better than what it feels like its limitations might be. I I think this is all a great place to start to explore that. But at a certain point, DS9, and and certainly you can make this argument with other shows that we'll get to, you know, they maybe sort of get burdened by their own storytelling. And that vision seems to take a detour. The, The stories being told seem to get farther and farther away from that initial premise. Norman, I think you you hit the nail on the head with your sample stories that you're pointing out i would also say that uh past tense you know Mm -hmm. there is that heartbreaking line in past tense which is dr bashir saying to cisco you know he he can under and i'm not going to quote it exactly but paraphrasing that he can look around at, at the homeless people who are in this uh sanctuary district and he can understand that there are people who hate other people and therefore disregard them or or treat them in this terrible way what he can't understand 
is people being treated this way because they're forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one of those Star Trek moments where it is just reaching through the TV screen and grabbing the viewer by the shirt lapels and saying, look, humanity can be better. Don't be this. Be somebody who cares about other people, even if you don't know them, because their plight is real and their uh, their existence benefits everybody. You know, so moments like that really, I think, speak to what uh, to where Gene's heart was in exploring the future and using that as a way to encourage the present. But DS9, look, you know, Matt used this interesting phrase, you know, DS9 forging a path of its own. And that's always going to be this tricky thing, whereas fans of a franchise and as fans of series within a franchise, we want the sequel to be the same but different. And when things get pushed to be too different, you feel like, okay, well, there's going to be a course correction that comes back and, and gets us a little more of the same. But if it's too much the same, then it just feels like the same or we're going to tune out. <laughs> so so DS9, I think overall, DS9 has this great ability of showing us compelling characters, giving us these stories that explore humanity in a very Star Trek way. And then they get really off course. And that's where you hear John and Norman start to uh, moan and complain about the Benjamin Sisko storyline. Yeah, the Apple, the uh, Apple box, you know, the yeah. Apple crate got a lot of work <laughs> yeah. in those episodes. Exactly. So you're saying we optimally want it to be only 25% different. <laughs> right. That's the goal. That is always the goal. 25% different trademark. A question here from Bramblin' Man, and, and this, is the, this, this is the last easy one before I start hitting you with my zingers. Right on. Okay. Mm. I know there has been significant and justified consternation about Worf's actions as we've gone along, but I am curious if, on the whole, you thought the show benefited or was hurt by his introduction into the series. Look, I, I do want to preface this by saying I'm not opposed to the I know it was a ratings grab, but I am not opposed to the idea of bringing somebody from next gen into DS9 because, look, you, you can connect those universes, whether they need to be there all the time or not, uh, whatever. I mean, that that's a sort of a stylistic, uh, artistic question. Do they fit the story that you're telling? Can you justify the character being there? I think that's okay. You know, connect those things, whatever. I think when Worf was used well, he was used very well. When we we got those nice uh, one-liners out of him, we need to get him into battle, something like that, cool. I think what they tried to do with him as far as relationships go uh, with Jadzia and later with Esri or with his own son, Alexander, they just were never able to push the character forward. So I, what, who who are you talking about? Oh, so the, if you go back, there's a, a much shorter Klingon who's, he's in there. He's in, I, so I go to memory alpha and look him up. Alexander, his brother. Klingon, but smaller. Yeah. 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 Uh, It's like, they forgot everything that happened that, that was built up for Worf in next gen. And instead of just taking it from there and building him up even more, like I would have loved to have had a wharf who was better and stronger and more secure in himself. And then that guy have a real moment of crisis when he kills Galron, mm-hmm. you know, but you get up to a point where he kills Galron and you just go like, yeah, Worf is this is lost soul. He has no idea what he's doing. So sure. 
kill Gowron, whatever, <laughs> you know. But, and I just feel like we went through a lot of unnecessary heartache with uh, with Esri in particular because his treatment of her was terrible. And well, what can be said of his relationship with Jadzia because that got ended? Is the show better for having him in the moments that he was good? Yeah, but. There are a lot of moments where I just feel like they didn't know what to do with the character. My issue with Worf, and I've asked this question before about any major character, and I think that I I probably weigh this a little bit more heavier when it comes to Worf as a main character, because he was brought in specifically for a reason, so that people would come and tune in to Deep Space Nine, having the fan base that Worf had coming in from the next generation. So with that responsibility for that character he should have been far more significant to the storyline than he was Mm -hmm. and if you really wanted to pluck him out of the timeline with the exception of dax and and what happened to her the marriage etc which completely kind of started to ruin her character overall her relationship with Worf, pluck him from the timeline he affects nothing Nothing. Yeah. Right? And that's the worst part. More <laughs> background characters. Uh, Rom, Lita, Dukat, Nog. Those characters are far more significant in the overall storyline of Deep Space Nine than the character they brought in specifically to bring in more ratings. Okay, well, wait a minute. He, he did kill Gowron and he made Martok the Chancellor. So that, that is a direct effect. That is him taking action on something. But that could have been somebody else. Like, Okay, well, that's very true. That was just, I mean, it could have been anybody else to do that. Yeah. So it could have been, it would have been great if it was like, say, Dax, for example. Worf didn't really mm-hmm. bring anything to the table that was significant. Significant yeah. things were written for him, but he himself as a character did not do things that were significant. Yeah, Jazeodax is a better Klingon than Worf. There, I said it. All right, or I'll hit us. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that leads um, nicely into one of my questions, which I'm going to dive into in no particular order here. Mm-hmm. Would a different next-gen character have had more storytelling possibilities in the DS9 setting than Worf? Ooh. Yeah, Chief O'Brien! Uh- well, we got Chief he O'Brien. He was there? <laughs> oh one who wasn't already on the show. <laughs> okay, let, let's, let's game this out. Uh, no to Picard, no to Data, uh, no to Riker. I mean, I think those are just too obvious. Big. Too in your, Who? They were too big. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're too big. Jordy is competing with O'Brien, so I think we did a better job with O'Brien. Would a guy like Barkley have been too out of place? To, I mean, did it just feel like a little too gimmicky? Maybe because like what what is he? Wait, bring? more gimmicky than Worf? <laughs> well, <laughs> Wesley would have felt gimmicky. Guinan would have felt gimmicky because she's magic. <laughs> this is tough. This is really hard. Okay, you know the, the next gen character who we're missing from DS Nine, Ensign Rowe. That's who we're missing from DS Nine, and I understand that Michelle Forbes didn't want to get back and play Kira. But if we could have gotten Ensign Rowe to come back a season or two in, three seasons in, I would have loved that. I would have totally been there for that. Because then, like Worf, she's still got this duality. She's torn between Starfleet and Bajor. Um, and, I, yeah, I think that would have been much more much more interesting. For, for me, having to – if they wanted to continue the Klingon storyline, which I think probably has – 
more more promise if you didn't have Worf in it. I would have brought in Kern. I think Kern would have been an mm. amazing character on Deep Space Nine. Tony Todd would have fit just the overall tone, I think, of the series. It wasn't Worf, but it was Worf's brother, and he has his own story to tell. And he probably would have been able to split the difference between the whole House of Moog, House of Martok, House of Gowron dynamic, where it would have been easier. It's easier for Worf because, like, say, Worf is Starfleet, right? Mm-hmm. But Kern isn't. So he would have to work within the Klingon dynamic. But at the same time, though, he has ties to Starfleet with his brother, with his experiences in Next Generation. I think that he would have been the perfect crossover where it's not as obvious. And he would have been able to forge a path for completely more interesting storylines when it comes to how he's interfacing with the Klingon High Command and his role on Deep Space Nine. Last question. Do you think the Deep Space Nine left anything behind for later Star Trek or even later television to build on? Do you see things on TV anywhere between 2000 and now, whether it's Star Trek or not, where you think, oh, that's got Deep Space Nine's fingerprints all over it? I mean, aside from the darkness I mean, and grittiness of now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's what I'm thinking is like right now. Well, you're talking culturally, politically, just even in Star Trek. I mean, look. We have had things that the the three of us have liked about Discovery, things that we have not liked about Discovery. I do not like leaning into Section 31 as being a major part of the plot. I think that is one of the worst legacies of DS9. DS9, though, forged the way for doing deeper character dives and longer story arcs. And I think when handled correctly as they did often in DS9, those things have forever changed how Star Trek is made. Now, granted, it is 20-plus years later, and seasons are shorter, and every streaming platform wants to have these long story arcs that keep people coming back over and over and over again. I totally get that. But I think without having DS9 there you don't necessarily get to Star Trek really embracing that as a kind of storytelling. So, you know, it's a a double-edged sword. I I can leave Section 31 behind, but I I will gladly take the more sophisticated approach that DS9 has in the way it writes its characters and and plot lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a character study-focused story or series, I think Deep Space Nine is probably at the highest level, like in Star Trek fandom, at least from what I've seen so far. Mm. So I think that being able to being able to lean on that a little bit from, you know, being a creator of new Star Trek, I think that the only thing that really kind of hampers uh, new Star Trek in a way is that they're so limited just in the amount of episodes that they can create so that you're not really giving a lot of character focus to all the characters where you were able to do that in a 26 episode run season. You know, so character development is, I mean, it's really everything. If you don't have great developed characters, if they don't have layer and nuance and subtlety, you know, they're they're either amalgamations or, you know, they're paper dolls of uh, people that just need to facilitate the story. And that's not what you want. You want characters that will interact with each other, that will fight with each other, that will fall in love with each other, that will break each other's hearts or break each other's bones. Take your pick. You know, Jadzia and Worf, they did both simultaneously. So... 
you want characters that you can fall in love with. And I think that that's what Deep Space Nine did more better than anyone because mm. not only was their cast of characters, their main cast, very good. And I only say very good because their secondary ca- cast was freaking amazing. <laughs> their secondary cast of characters literally is probably better than any main cast of characters I've seen so far on Star Trek. That's how yeah. talented they were. That's how deep the bench was. That's how well written they were. And I think it's because... The writers were confined to telling the Starfleet story with their secondary characters. That's where the flexibility comes in in Deep Space Nine, being able to tell morally questionable storylines because you don't have to fall in line with this is Starfleet. But that's where the Starfleet characters needed to push back in order for Deep Space Nine to really fall into the balance of, yes, we're holding a certain ideal to this standard, but only because these characters are so dark that we have to find a better way forward because that's what Starfleet's about juxtaposed to these characters that are pushing us in this direction. I think that's where they really missed an opportunity in Deep Space Nine. Earl, thank you so much for being host to me and Norman on our uh, DS9 wrap-up roundtable. I, I hope we all learned a little something today. I know that I learned that our our listeners and our editor pay very close attention to what we say, and they have good questions for us. <laughs> so I will also say that if you have questions or comments, um, if you don't know where to send them already, well, here we'll tell you very quickly. Email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Find us on our socials, uh, Facebook and Twitter, at Mission Log Pod, and um, you know they may get answered in a show like this or on Mission Log Engage. If you haven't joined us at Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/MissionLog, that is a great place for you to interact one-on-one and with our social community on Discord. So I hope we see you there. Norman, thank you. Earl, thank you. I guess what we do this again in three and a half years at the end of Voyager, if we're lucky, and we'll see what the outcome is going to be from that. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.